Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me again is Shane Jenkins. It's wonderful to have you back on the show, Shane. Thank you. I I don't remember if it's been my fourth or fifth time now, but I'm finally becoming in that club of repeat members. So thank you. Yeah, it is your fourth or fifth. You, we, we've done a fairly eclectic mix of topics with mm. you, and this, this one will be no exception, but we'll get to that. Um, we did. I know we did T.S. Eliot. I know we did Walker Percy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we also did the paintings of Tissot. Flannery. And then you're right. Your most recent one was our, our Flannery episode from a couple of months ago. So, yeah, this must be your fifth. And we've, we've gone for a completely different topic yet again <laughs> for this episode. Different, but I guess similar in that it often is like a niche thing that I bring to you and I obsess over and then eventually I get you to also obsess over it. So, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So for this episode, we're going to talk about the album called Offerings by a band called Typhoon. Mm-hmm. And I think this is our first episode on an album. We've done one wow. on hymns before, but to be honest, our, our how much we've covered music is um, relatively limited. I think I once read a... A, a quote which said something like talking about music is like dancing about architecture. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it is a little bit trickier when you're trying to describe what something sounds like or what the experience of listening to something is. But especially when we have an album which is sort of as rich lyrically as this one is, it feels like it's an appropriate topic for, for a podcast. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say that we're at least lucky in that my personal opinion, Typhoon and the works of Kyle Morton are among some of the most lyrically rich stuff we have, at least the past 10 years when it comes to things that are relevant to existentialism and philosophy and theology. But then, yeah, I suppose also this could be an invitation for people to go and eventually listen to the album. Uh, I hope that you would do so after this. We're going to pull out some uh, fascinating elements that you probably wouldn't have noticed just listening to it the first time through. But hopefully if we can do that for you, it'll actually highlight those for you and help you experience the album more deeply. So Absolutely. Yeah, I would really encourage everyone to listen to it. I don't think it will necessarily be to everyone's taste. I love it. I think it's amazing. Uh, I did check what the the genre officially is. I think it's officially indie rock. I do find these genre labels kind of not particularly helpful, especially anymore. They get very niche or too broad. But yeah, it's really musically interesting as well as lyrically interesting, which, like I said, we'll probably be focusing mainly on the lyrics for this episode. But it's very musically interesting, doesn't tend to follow a sort of verse-chorus-verse-chorus pattern. The band is... A, a very large band. There's a lot of different instrumentation coming in and out of it. And I think you're going to speak a little bit about the different members, Shane. But maybe actually, do we want to just start with how you came across this band and how you came to share it with me? I would, I'd love to do that. I also know that really quickly, to quote a listener, someone asked the other time, who is Shane Jenkins? <laughs> so I, I should probably say at first who I am. But I'll be very brief because I'm far less interesting than what we're talking about. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so I am just a friend of yours, but I'm also someone who I guess gets quite obsessed with and has these pet projects of researching fascinating pieces of artwork that I feel like get less attention. Um, I research them in detail and want to bring them to the world. In a sense, it's kind of like an Evangelion or a good news in that I find something beautiful and rich and I want other people to experience that. So that was true with the Tissot works. 
that's also true with Percy, and then now it's true with Typhoon as well. So, um, yeah, I went to the University of Notre Dame and studied and the program of liberal studies and theology, so I have a background in Catholic thought and a lot of the classics, but that's partially or likely why Typhoon stuck out to me and my peers is that he references so many wonderful authors and, and works and films that I would have also loved. So, yeah, that's that's me. I'm thrilled that we finally answered the question, who is Shane Jenkins? <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, oh, okay. So how did I encounter this? It's actually, I have a fun little story for this. So Typhoon was introduced to me by a, a now groomsman of mine back in college. And at that time, it was just the earlier works. And I really enjoyed them for their sound and their, their catchiness, but I hadn't really listened to the lyrics that closely until slowly Hunger and Thirst and then White Lighter started to speak at, speak to me more and more. And I shared them with my now fiancé Robin um, and was trying to force her to listen to more and more of it. Thankfully, she did enjoy it, but she actually listened to Offerings more than I initially did. That, at the time, I was a little bit disappointed in the album. felt sludgier. It felt less focused on... The brightness of the prior albums um, and I missed out on its richness and so she brought me back to it I started listening to it more and more and it just turned out that every time we'd put it on in the car we'd be like oh we listen to the whole thing yeah let's listen to the whole thing and then we'd just cry for about like half to three quarters of the album <laughs> but it was a, it was like a really cathartic crying and uh, the last thing I'll mention really quickly is Robin for those who don't know is my now fiance. She's another guest in this podcast. So there's a little B- BTS where the people on this podcast are real people that exist outside of the confines of your phone. Kind of weird. But then also, I don't know if, if any of the members of Typhoon or Kyle will be listening, but uh, we were at a show recently in Denver in 2022. And when they asked who was thought they were from the furthest distance, we screamed Ireland in the back because that's obviously where Robin is from. And uh, don't know if they'll remember that, but they, they did find it funny at the time that they had an Irish guest at their show. So that's also how we found them. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. Yeah, I'm very glad to be able to to join the dots for any of our listeners of, of who my various guests are, that my that my friends are all also interconnected. So it's wonderful. I think the last time you were on for Flannery O'Connor, I made fun of you afterwards <laughs> because you referenced Robin being your girlfriend, but you had actually just proposed to her a couple of weeks before. Right, I just I just forgot <laughs> that I was engaged. <laughs> be and of course, we went to visit you in, in Chicago. I think we mm-hmm. talked about that. Phoebe and I, my my usual co-host Phoebe and I went to visit you guys in Chicago, which was a great trip. And the reason I bring it up is because that trip was actually how I came to listen to mm-hmm. the album Offerings. You had previously introduced me to the band. Specifically, I'd listened a lot to their album White Lighter and found it really moving and like a, an incredible musical piece. But when I was visiting you guys, you had sort of made the case to make sure I listened to this album Offerings. And I remember really clearly, you had told me to download it for the flight on the way home. And I had had it ready on my phone, was on the airplane, watched a movie or two, got some sleep. But as we were kind of getting closer to, to Dublin, I was like, oh, I better listen to this album because I said I would. And I thought it would be a really nice opportunity. Like you said, it really lends itself to listening to it as a whole album, just all the way through. And so I started at the beginning and I could see the distance to Dublin getting shorter and shorter and realizing that I was going to slightly overshoot 
the album time with when we were going to land. And I remember, I, I think I was one or two tracks from the end <laughs> and the, the plane was landing and I sort of briefly paused it and leaned over to Phoebe and said, just don't talk to me until I start talking to you because I need to get to the end of this. <laughs> so we we got off the plane in complete like I got my bags down and I like did all of this in complete silence not talking to each other at all as I was like Uh furiously listening and as you know the final track of the album is like really moving and important and like has a whole extra section to it and I remember us walking through the airport and me with my headphones clamped on being like just don't talk to me yet (laughs) that's insane I love that Uh, yeah that was such a great way to experience it and I, I loved it very much and yeah I really hope that we get some listeners for the band from this because that would be really great yeah. and if you do happen to listen to them I think it's worth shouting out the fact that they do have some live shows coming up soon and they're particularly special because they have the full band as like we said it's quite a, quite an extensive band and yeah yeah. Do you want to say a bit more about that? No. I, I'm going to I'm going to be watching keenly from the other side of the ocean, but uh, I won't be able to. Attend. No, I'm glad you mentioned that. I did want to give that a quick shout out. Typhoon doesn't tour all that much anymore as they've gotten older. Or also, if, if you know the story of Kyle, which we'll share briefly, you'd realize that he also is immune compromised in many ways. So it's challenging to travel. But yeah, they're redoing the entirety of White Lighter. They're going to play the whole album, which I think is almost never done that they play the full thing. And they'll have the full, like, 12-ish plus member band, or most of them back, which uh, was was no longer the case by the time they made offerings. The band had gotten smaller by that point. It's hard to hold that mass in one place for a long time. But, um, yeah, <laughs> I don't know if I'll be able to make it. Price and just busyness of getting married this year is getting in the way, sadly. But Robert and I did buy tickets to one of the shows, and we hope we can go, but we'll we'll see. But as a lot of banter, I also want to get to the podcast, or not the podcast, the uh, the album, and <laughs> make sure we talk about that too. Yeah, a hundred percent. I think there's just a tiny bit more background that we should give. Do you want to just give a little bit more clear information about who this band are and who's involved? Yeah, thank you for saying that. Um, so Kyle Morton, who we'll be referencing a lot throughout this podcast, is the lead vocalist. I'll give a little bit of a short story about his background in a second, but. He's joined by a couple other people on this album, such as Tyler Farron, Alex Fitch, Devin Gallagher, Dave Hall, Peter Hilton, Shannon Steele, and Toby Tanabe. So those are the band members, and I wanted to give them all a shout out because Kyle himself has said that even though he thinks he can be a decent lyricist now and again, when I'd say even better, his words don't work alone, and they really hang on this music to become a, a, a whole that's greater than its parts, and I, I couldn't agree more. So they've done an excellent job of bringing this album to life together. But... The story of Kyle is unfortunately a little bit similar to people you might recognize, such as Ignatius of Loyola or Walker Percy, in that he had the misfortune to deal with illness and the the very real possibility of his death at a young age. If you listen to some of his past works, they delve into this, but he was bitten by, uh, ostensibly by a tick, something that gave him Lyme disease when he was a young kid. And then that was undiscovered and really not noticed or diagnosed for quite a while and it ravaged his his, in, his insides and his organs um at one point they thought they found it and had given him antibiotics to kill it but it didn't all the way and he eventually needed a kidney transplant from his father now this is all information that i've gotten from him talking about it online so hope it doesn't sound too personal that i know this but that said the one small gift i think that can be said for that experience of him that he had was that he had the opportunity to become far more introspective while dealing with the suffering that comes with 
seeing a life unlived or a life that might have been, he actually was able to reflect on a lot of existential questions that most people don't have to care about until they're older or another tragedy strikes, etc. And so quick note, it's interesting, at least for us from a Catholic podcast perspective, that Kyle did spend a summer, I, I believe, at an Anglo-Catholic monastery near Three Rivers, Michigan, St. Gregory's Abbey. And at that place, I believe Kyle encountered a lot of the works that become really important to him, such as Kierkegaard, Dostoevsky, and just generally entering the world of Western philosophy and theology and kind of using that to make sense of the suffering he was experiencing. Now, I don't believe Kyle is <laughs> explicitly any one denomination. He might be open to Christianity. I don't actually know. Kyle had to say for himself. But but a lot of these themes from these works and thinkers do come up, and we're going to be finding some fascinating ones throughout this album. But yeah, that, that's mostly the background. And then Offerings itself is written in some sense about his observations of family members who were going through um, dementia and memory loss and aging and struggling with their own mortality, but particularly from what he was seeing from afar, there was a tragedy of seeing people lose themselves, become less themselves in a, in a sense, and he was wondering, you know, what what can possibly transcend this utter subtraction and suffering and diminution and degeneration of life? Yeah, but the album is about that journey. Yeah, I love it. And I think maybe it's worth reading out the album description that they, the band, published with the album when it came out as well. Um, it says, Imagine yourself at the end of your life, your once expansive mind now wrapped tightly, exclusively around the present moment, give or take a few seconds. Memories, if you can call them that, visit you in fragments, scrap of song here, aching bone there. Figures move ghost-like around the periphery. Every so often one dips into the foreground, making unintelligible sounds from an unrecognisable mouth. You aren't sure if there is still a world out there, but if there is, it isn't looking good. Dissolving now into the greater nothingness, you strain with what is left of your being toward one desperate thought, that somewhere in this jumble of pain and oblivion, there is something essential, one simple truth that will pay for everything. You just have to remember it. And so that is their kind of statement, which was about the album. And I think it, it does sum up a lot of the experience of the album, which does a really great job of having these incredibly rich themes, but introducing them in ways that weave in and out or like have this experience of it being like scraps of memories or recurring thoughts mm -hmm. or, you know, fragments of images. And so it's kind of doing what it's talking about as well, which is to, to give you an experience of, like you said, your first listening of it was kind of sludgy. There's almost like a, a like a dark jumble to the album. But what they're so good at then is like piercing through with these incredible observations about what it means to be human, mm -hmm. especially at the end of our lives. From a Catholic point of view, you know, we talk a lot about memento mori and remember that you will die. And I think it's easy to think about that in terms of, oh, that, that we should be preparing for death because it means that we're going to meet God or meet our maker or find what happens next. But there is also just the sense of how difficult it is for everyone really to really sit in the thought of our dying moments and what does it mean to come to the end of our lives. And I think with Western medicine and the way that things are going, most of us, obviously not all of us, but many of us will live 
to see our minds disintegrate in some ways faster than our bodies. And I think most of us have experienced this in one way or another with aging relatives or people that we've known. And it can be very, very scary and difficult to sit in reflection about what the end of our lives will look like because it is a time that is about whether we want it or not is about kind of relinquishing control but also because I think it's a, it, it is a beautiful thing it is the the threshold moment it is something that we should have hope for and I think it's really important to remember that especially as Catholics we have this beautiful tradition of the rosary which has us saying the Hail Mary over and over again in which we ask Our Lady to pray for us now and at the moment of our death and to think of a lifetime spent saying that prayer which accumulates however many thousands hundreds of thousands of times maybe that you've said it that you will have prayers at the hour of your death that this is something that we should be preparing for and giving mind to and as dark and as scary as it is and I think this album does a great job of not flinching away from that reality but also suggesting the hope that lies beyond and that mm-hmm. that there is more to hope for so yeah i just think for an album what what an incredible topic and angle to take for a musical exploration right like it's so heavy it's so dense and it's also a beautiful witness to that suffering you described where you know Kyle's mm-hmm. familiar with chronic pain I think most people we know would have some experience either personally or of a relative who has chronic suffering or pain in that way. And yet, Mm -hmm. what's interesting is, in the past, uh, there are some some works of Kyle's and Typhoon's that would talk about the fear of death happening in isolation or being alone. And that actually is a huge theme in this work is does that diminution, the sort of subtraction of self, the loss of all your capacities and faculties end in total like isolation and void? Or is this relationship so essential to what it means to be human that it actually like is there at even at the final moments? And so, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm so excited to talk about this. Should we just mention really quickly the structure, the album, before we talk about some yeah, lyrics? Yeah, of course. So last bit of context is that The album is a little over an hour long, and it's broken up essentially into three big chunks with an epilogue. So the first chunk of songs is called Flood Plains. The second chunk is called Flood. The third is Reckoning. And then there's the epilogue afterwards. Also should note that the first and last songs are called Wake and Sleep, which is quite interesting, and that all of the song titles are one word, uh, which Kyle says is an intentional choice because the song is about subtractions about um you know isolating and bringing things down to their their most basic root level so yeah i'll i'll just mention a fun fact that one cool thing is the end of each of these chunks of, of these songs so in first one algernon the second one the song mansion and lastly the third one the song ariadne they actually all have these moments where the songs from the other chunks bleed through and so at the end of Algernon, you don't know it yet because you haven't heard the song yet, but you're hearing whisperings of the song Mansion. And then in Mansion, you're hearing whisperings of Ariadne. And in Ariadne, you're hearing whisperings of Wake again, back to the beginning of the album. And so like you said, there really is this like, just like memory, these things floating out of the void and coming coming to the focus on the surface. And you'll notice throughout the album that it does feel like there are actually whisperings of other songs that will appear in various places, which is so cool. But Yeah, that's just a quick structural note. Yeah, I love it. And I think maybe it's worth also just introducing the very first words of the 
of the album. It's not it's not quite I don't know if you can quite call it lyrics because it's sort of a spoken statement at the very start before the music really begins. And part of me wants to to say this mainly because I get to make an old English reference, which makes me very happy. But uh, it begins with the sentence, listen, of all the things you're about to lose, this will be the most painful. And I think that's just such a striking way to begin an album, which which is this call to listen, like you're sitting down to this album, actually pay attention. But it really reminds me of the beginning of Beowulf, the famous Old English poem, which which begins with this exclamation, which is what, which we don't really have a, a, a true translation for. People render it as like low or listen or something like that, that like it's like a call to attention. And it, it even reminds me of the beginning of a lot of prayers of like behold or low. You and I both know, we were just at a conference, we went to a Byzantine Rite Mass, and every time they read from the scripture, they'll go, <laughs> wisdom, be attentive, <laughs> which became a, a bit of a joke for us on that trip, because it's just so perfect. Wisdom, yeah. be attentive. Exactly. But that we do need, the, as, as, as strange as it feels to our ears now, that we do need to, to get these calls to attention. And so I love that as the beginning of the album and of the track Wake. And it, it really is also a great setup to what the theme, and I think maybe this is the first theme that we kind of want to delve into, which is this, like, of all the things you're about to lose, this will be the most painful. And what, what he's talking about is, like, you can interpret in many ways, but at least it seems to be partially the loss of identity, the loss of agency, of memory, of these things that feel like they're so essential to who you are as a person. And to ask the question, you know, what is left when you take those things away? Are you still the same person? And do you still have the same kind of dignity or meaning or space in the world when you're in a position where those things are gone from you? I love that. There are various points in these albums where I probably will want to just read more than I ought to read, but I'll, I'll trust that you guys can go and listen to this. But yeah, so it it introduces that theme pretty early on. There are a couple of themes we're going to touch on here, but the theme of distilling down who we are. And in this case, he's observing it be happening forcefully to someone, someone who isn't just doing a... Like a, like a Cartesian reduction of saying, if I if I reduce everything, what is left? It's someone who is being forced through that process. But actually, there might be something universal and human about that. That the process of dying, of losing those faculties, makes us confront that that essential truth. And so, the question is: Is there nothing left, or is there a hope that something can transcend and something about us does extend beyond? Mm-hmm. Like we said, you can pull out lyrics from any of the mm. tracks on this album and talk about them in, in context of almost any of the themes. But in particular, there's the track Algernon, which is from the perspective of someone who has lost their memory and is kind of sitting in a darkened room and trying to understand what's happening. And and in particular, it's very heartbreaking because they feel like they're talking to a stranger and they just want to talk to their their wife and like have their wife come and pick them up. But it's it's clear to the listener that the person they are talking to is in fact their wife. And I don't know, maybe I'll just pull out one of the, the lyrics from it because it's such beautiful storytelling as well. And it's so interesting in terms of how much it talks about what you have accomplished with your life and what is left at the end of it. So it says... 
Look at there, such a strong man, all the virtues of youth. You led a good life by every account. There were people who looked up to you. I say, enough is enough. You have found me out. You have called my bluff. I don't know anything about this stuff. I'm just tired and I'm waiting for my wife to pick me up. A woman slouched in her chair disrupts the silence to say, the part of you that I love is still there, even if it doesn't know my name. Mm, I love that. And it's one of the quieter songs, and I think it's one of the, musically, it's very pared back, but it has this huge heart to it, which is showing the space to allow someone to love you kind of even when it seems as if you have nothing left to give them. And I think it's very interesting to always keep the the title of the album in context mm-hmm. because it's called Offerings and the concept of offering comes up a lot and I think it's interesting because as you said it's not necessarily his denominational background I think Catholics in particular are associated with this word because we have that thing of oh offer it up <laughs> um, and as you as you said this is in the context of someone who is having it forcefully taken away from them in that they didn't choose to lose these faculties. But what does it mean to offer up these things and to have this part of your life be an offering both to the people in your life and to, and to God? Because I think, you know, we think of offerings, I, I often think of it in the context of the story of Cain and Abel, and there's the idea of the the worthy offering when you bring the best instead of the kind of second rate stuff and you give that to God. But what does it mean when your best is kind of your worst that like you you kind of don't have anything else to, to bring other than some of the darker, also even just the sense of like the things that you don't have control over. Can you, can you offer back the things that you Mm. haven't chosen for yourself? And I, I think about it in terms of the part in the gospel where Jesus points out the widow who, who gives the penny being greater than, than the people who have more being able to give more or even when we think about it in terms of the the crucifixion that that was the greatest offering and it was also the most kind of repellent to look at it wasn't this triumphal thing yeah yeah i really want to come back to this crucifixion parallel Um, especially as we get towards the end of the album i feel like that it really shines there and resonates in lots of ways but I, i would just agree that in some ways this is also there's there's a slight hope that our sufferings, which on the surface appear to be pointless and worth nothing, and in fact, only harmful, there's no good in them. And, and I think Kyle has talked about this. It, it is true to say that there's not necessarily any inherent good in the suffering itself, but there is the ability to redeem those things, uh, which is a, a strong theme in Brothers Karamazov, is how can uh, you know a seed must die into the earth to be reborn. And so maybe these things that we don't choose, the sufferings for ourselves that, that are happened to us, they actually can be an offering if we, we change our mindset around it. And yeah, I if I can do my own little reading from a line here, I'm going to go a bit earlier into Empiricists. So that's the song before. And we have the, the, the appearance in a couple of these songs of a, of a motif that they're going to be bringing in a lot. So if anyone has seen older Italian film, you might recognize the line, Asa Nisi Masa, Asa Nisi Masa. And that is from a Federico Fellini film, Eight and a Half, where the phrase is used as sort of like a, a magic nonsense ploy to bring the main character back to memories of their childhood. And the reason for that is that in looking back into the past and thinking about one's origins, uh, you can understand a little bit about who you are today. That sometimes those seminal moments from the past in- totally inform the kind of person you become later on. We'll come back to that. But 
in Empiricist, after we, it's sort of like a two-part song. After the first part talks about the characters struggling to locate themselves in, in a room that's unfamiliar, you can imagine someone with dementia reaching about the room for the landmarks of their life, which if they're in a hospital or old folks home are no longer there. So they're literally lost in at sea because their physical trappings are disappearing. But it then transitions into the second part of the song where after saying, asa nisi masa, asa nisi masa, the line is, Mother pulled from father's ribs, little baby in a crib, hands reaching up, before the blinding light is split through the prism of your organs into colors, all that being and nothingness on the same Mobius strip, sleep and waking up. I know that you've, you were putting a couple of comments in our notes here about the Mobius strip theme, the, uh, I'll let you define that in a second, but how eternity can be like repeating on itself in some ways is a recurring theme in this. But I just want to quickly linger on one, the Edenic imagery of mother pulled from father's ribs, potentially nativity imagery of a little baby in a crib, but then also just the, the poetry or the, the fierce imagery of light being split through the prism of organs. That's, that's, you know, pregnancy, that's, that's being in utero. There's just something really brilliant about not just casting back to childhood, but casting back to like potentially the very limits of our understanding and how there is a mystery in how our beginning and our end bear a lot of similarity. Both of them are where memory begins to fade into nothingness, and yet they're kind of perhaps the most significant parts of our life where we go from nothing to something or something to nothing, and we wish to see that. We wish to observe that. We wish to be fully present and aware of it, but the nature of our existence is that we can't see those moments. And that's a theme that's going to keep coming up in this. The fact that he references sleep and waking up being, in a sense, one and the same, again, reflects the titles or the titles of the first and last songs on the album, uh, Wake and Sleep. And so, yeah, did you want to talk about the Mobius strip at all? Yeah, just if, if anyone doesn't know what a Mobius strip is, it's, it's a, a mathematically unorientable surface with only one side and one boundary. It looks a bit like a loop, but that has been twisted around so that essentially you can't tell which side, where each side ends and begins. And so just that idea, like you were saying, of the transition points where it's hardest to find the beginning and the end and what that means. And like you said, it's such a a powerful theme in the album. and, And that kind of, like you said, the parallel between the lack of agency, the lack of like personal identity that comes with either being a newborn baby or being someone at the end of their lives, that it's it's a great parallel that we have. And I just think it's so beautiful. And there's such a rich element of um, poetry to that as well. I love how much he references T.S. Eliot. Shane and I have already done an episode on T.S. Eliot, so we share this in common. But, you know, he has that that great line from the four quartets where he says that the end is where we started from Mm. and the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning and he has that great sense of the the end being like the beginning and this sense of transition point and it reminded me as well of course the first track is called wake which you know, as you said, mirrors sleep at the end, but also is a part of a funeral. It's it's the, the waiting over the body. So it has that great double meaning, which is like the standing vigil over someone who is just passed as they're passing into the next world. So that we have this double meaning of wake, which just feels so appropriate and rich. I'm so glad I have 
like a like a philologist like you to talk with because I my mind was blown when you pointed that out. I keep finding these new meanings and subtleties that I've I've missed and yeah, yeah, the double meaning of wake is so cool. Um before we move on from empiricists as well, I just think it's so cool that an artist found a way to use the word hecatomb in a song. Yeah. If anyone doesn't know and I didn't know, a hecatomb is a Greek word for the sacrifice of a hundred cattle. And he, he compares himself to that, saying, all of my nightmares are I'm slowly being cocooned. Again, like the the loss of your ability to move and your agency. A single calf in the hecatomb, sort of contrasting what am I, this this small single creature's loss amidst the great dance of, of humanity and life. But then you also pointed out the double meaning of cocoon to me, that like, it's not just being cocooned to die. Cocoons are for metamorphosis. And that's another mm-hmm. thing that has come up for Kyle in the past. Metamorphosis either going sideways and in, in the wrong direction or potentially metamorphosis being there to like save a broken, broken body. Yeah. Wow. That's so cool. Yeah. I, I just think that it's such a great theme that he keeps revisiting. And to come back to the the T.S. Eliot quote, he has another one, which he I think he even might have explicitly said this in one of the interviews, but I had caught it at the time at the start of the second track, Rorschach, which is one of my favorites. Like I said, it's really hard to pick favorites because they feel like they're all part of the one movement. But Rorschach is definitely one that I keep revisiting. But he he says that he's left wondering what happened to the life we lost that got lost in the living, which is one of the few almost direct quotes that he has in it. And it's from T.S. Eliot's The Course is from The Rock. And it's great because I, I maybe this is a slightly long uh, quote to pull out, but it is so kind of emblematic of everything that he's talking about in the album and some of the, the other themes that we want to pick out. But the, the first stanza, which of which that is a part of, says, The eagle soars in the summit of heaven. The hunter with his dogs pursues his circuit. O perpetual revolution of configured stars. O perpetual recurrence of determined seasons. O world of spring and autumn, birth and dying. The endless cycle of idea and action. Endless invention, endless experiment brings us knowledge of motion, but not of stillness. Knowledge of speech, but not of silence. Knowledge of words and ignorance of the word. All our knowledge brings us nearer to our ignorance. All our ignorance brings us nearer to death. But nearness to death, no nearer to God. Where is the life we have lost in the living? Where is the wisdom we have lost in knowledge? Where is the knowledge we have lost in information? The cycles of heaven in 20 centuries bring us farther from God and nearer to the dust. Which, I mean, T.S. Eliot is just so much my <laughs> I, I find it hard not to keep returning to him mm-hmm. but it, it's interesting because Rorschach actually begins uh, there's a line before the the one about getting lost in the living that says we have all the information now but what does it mm-hmm. mean and I think that's a really interesting one because it places the album not just in the context of the personal but in the context of the political as well and and the sort of sense of modernity and that this might be an exploration of a personal experience of death but that it can also relate to our experience of of the world now which is an overwhelming amount of information but without 
without that kind of discernment of mind to get at the truth mm. and get at what is truly necessary. There's so much information that to, to get down to these essentials that he's talking about here, it feels impossible. And that sense of being adrift in time and and not having a foundation of, of where our past comes from and being stuck in the sort of present. It's funny because so much of our like mindfulness talks about being present to the world as being a good thing. And I think there is certainly that, that to not get worried about the future or obsessed with what happened in the past. But that he's almost suggesting as well that there's a version of that, which is to just be adrift in time, to be sucked into the breaking news cycle of, of whatever's happening on TV, of never stepping out of the melee of what is happening right now and needs to be talked about right now and have all of your opinions on right now that like, there is that line that T.S. Eliot has of like, where is the silence in this? Yeah, that's brilliant. And then even, I think in one of the interviews, Kyle mentions that musically, they wanted to mirror this in the fact that you'll hear various points, a kind of white noise emerging and maybe clouding over the music, um, out of which these moments of clarity break through. But the white noise, he said, is actually just him singing multiple different notes on just like a normal scale, but playing them all at the same time. And it's in fact, chords only make sense when there are specific notes that, that harmonize rather than every note all at once just becomes noise. And so it's awesome that they can embody that in the music and it has the same effect. Like it actually does the, the thing it's mm -hmm. talking about in the way you hear it. I just wanted to add that one last line from Rorschach that's fascinating, and you pulled out a good interpretation of this, is that at one point in the beginning, he says, reasons a tease, drank up all that hemlock, here I am just reading the leaves. And for those who recognize that, that allusion to drinking hemlock and the death of Socrates, there's an interesting analysis that you actually pulled a quote from. I think the quote says it well, saying that, it implies that the narrator and Socrates were misguided, hence reason is a tease, but that once they drink the tea, they realized this sort of suicidal tea would not provide the escape they believed it would. Thus, all they can do is stare into their cup and guess what happens next, thereby reading the leaves. And then you pointed out that there is a similarity between the divination of reading tea, tea leaves, and then also a Rorschach test itself. You know, what do you see? Your guess is as good as mm -hmm. mine looking at this world and the mystery it has, like we can only guess at what might be in the afterlife. Um, however, does our, I think the question that I love to ask is, does our innate longing tell us something about the nature of the universe? We'll get to that further on, but it's clear that Kyle and others with chronic suffering and the character in this song, they yearn for fulfillment. They yearn for relief. They yearn for some kind of wholeness to be made of this broken life and this broken world. But will that wholeness ever come? And does the desire alone imply that that is a possibility? We can come back to that, though. Yeah, well, I, I think maybe there's an element of that which we can explore for now, which is also just that sense of not running away from pain and it being while you said before that it is not at all to say that suffering itself is, is a good thing, but that we can gain greater things from that. And I think it's particularly interesting in the context of the line that you said about like drank up all that hemlock, uh, that sense that Socrates sort of reasoned his way into to suicide and how we might even see that in the context of like a lot of the debates now around euthanasia and the sort of 
sense at which it is better to just avoid suffering mm. as much as possible. Cut it off. I think it's interesting. I, I, I've had the experience of my life for various reasons, a lot of them kind of like very benign, odd reasons, but I've spent a lot of time in nursing homes. <laughs> um, and so I, I do want to just make sure that like our listeners know, I'm under no illusions about the difficulty and the pains of, of end of life care. It, it's not at all that it, this is an easy topic, but it is interesting that there is a sense at which in actually confronting through this album, that period of somebody's life that so much of the time we just want to get away from or get over as quickly as possible that that there may be something that we're missing and I think it was interesting you you sent me Shane a, an interview that Kyle did for the DePaul University philosophy group but he says in that that he says I think there's a lot of reaction against the idea that suffering pays off because it's used to make people suffer that narrative when imposed on someone else is a terrible cruel thing on the other hand if we're striving for modern life to be sans all suffering sans all pain then it expresses itself in weird sort of grotesque pains, like complete numbness of being. And I think that's something that he's really pushing against, like you said, because of his experience with chronic pain and also just the other experiences of that he's seen in his life with various family members, that there is something worth doing in abiding in that space and time, e even when it, it takes a lot of courage and bravery to not just sort of run in the opposite direction. Because I think... It's interesting how as much as he's talking about losing your memory as being this extremely terrifying process, but he has also made a point throughout his work that actually memories are only ever uh, in some ways a construct that they're kind of he often talks about them in the context of films and editing and uh, how we pick out things that we remember for weird reasons or that we remember them through the eyes of somebody else who told us about the event, whether we actually remember it ourselves or not. And so are, are we really holding on to something that's fundamental to us when we talk about our memories? Or are we actually kind of deceiving ourselves by saying that these memories are, are who we are when really there, is, there has to be something more fundamental to our being than that because so much of our memories aren't even quote-unquote true. They mightn't actually match up to what really happened. And so, so much of what we're kind of struggling against in that process is the relinquishment of who we think of ourselves as a person to be rather than the person that we actually are and how others perceive us and love us and want us to be present to them. And so, like he says, the film in your brain, it edits to remember, keeps the figure in the frame. It's sacrificial violence, all those passed over in silence, then cast out with the blame. So just that idea that like as much as as this process is kind of of subtraction, there is also a, a need to reckon with ourselves of how much of our personhood is our own construct. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. And and. That's fascinating to me in so many ways. I, I agree that there's this ongoing theme of film editing and then also an analysis or investigation into what it means to be dealing with the person who you are and the person who you want to be and like where where are those distinctions. In some sense, Kyle's mentioned before that there is a, a false reality in thinking that, oh, there's a me that I could have been if only X, Y, and Z hadn't happened to me. Because that isn't you. You are who you are because of precisely the environment you, you grew up in, and that's what formed you despite those, those those pains. But yeah, like you said, memory can still be something that occludes the harder moments. And I, 
think the question that he keeps bringing up throughout this album is, as you start to lose that memory, as as the pieces that you've selected out to define yourself by get stripped away, or to quote another song, remember, what survives in the fire, what small fragment after all else disintegrates, you know, put the soul in a crucible, what's going to be there? Strip away your your history, your past, etc. I think we're going to find something really interesting comes up later on where it seems like there is something that persists and that we aren't just a creature who can define ourselves through film editing and isolation. In fact, from the moment we're born, we're inherently relational. We're born into utter dependence upon our parents. We die similarly, most likely independence on the people around us if we're, if we're fortunate. And yeah, I think we're going to see how that relationship can kind of like be sort of the center of what 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 is that that remains there's something about that i, I don't want to say too much we're gonna we're gonna touch on it in the final song yeah but yeah just a quick shout out to more amazing lines and remember which is another lovely song there's lots of references to mazes and corridors which you know we've got a song ariadne later that references that we've got a bit of imagery from potentially borges going on in here um and then Remember is also a really fun song because it gives us the image from the album artwork, which is a person standing in front of a giant bonfire. If I, if you don't mind, can I read some of the lines from that? I think it's fun because this is maybe one of the more narrative parts of the whole album. And I think you'll, you guys will enjoy it. But fine. So we've, we're nearing the moment where the dam is going to break. Like the, the deluge is coming. The memory wall can't hold itself together anymore. And in the song, it breaks and the music explodes forth. And then we have this this area which says, speaking from the perspective of, of the man's wife, ostensibly, I come home and the door is hanging open, the smoke alarm is howling, the bathroom mirror is broken, find you standing in the backyard pouring gas on the bonfire. Ass naked in the middle of December, the shame you don't recall with the clothes you don't remember in flames, tearing pages and notebooks in the embers, your makeshift funeral pyre. I toss and turn all night, then it comes to me. It's you that can't shake the shards in your memory. So you've engaged in this scorched earth policy till there's nothing. There's nothing. Later on, claiming wolves replaced your family, you raised your hand against me with a newspaper you can't read. Then you wrapped yourself in an op-head on the construct of history. The mark of time is elaborately long. It's a spirograph drawn with no breaks, just goes on and on. And here we are on the cutting room floor, slicing fugues where they don't belong. And oh, I just I just love this so much. Whenever I hear it, I'm just like jamming. But but Robin put it out to me that it is one of the funnier moments of levity in the album where <laughs> the guy raises his hand against someone with a newspaper he can't read and then pretends to wrap himself in a very dense op-ed, which again he can't read. And there's like yeah. a little bit of humor and, and the pride of kind of thinking like, no, get away. I, I'm I'm still independent and in who I am and then kind of like acting the part that you are. And you, you've mentioned the theme of acting and potentially the performance of identity going on in here as well. And mm. we can touch on that. But but yeah, just a quick, quick summary. This guy is trying to amputate, like you said, those painful moments from his life, the things he's losing, his memory that he's losing, the identity that he's losing by just burning it all. If I can get rid of it, if I can cut it off first, can I beat the, can I beat the pain to reaching me? Can I actually do that? But then we're seeing that there will be other consequences. Yet you can't 
necessarily try to amputate all these parts of your life. In fact, later in the song, they say, you tried to amputate the parts that made you scared to die, but now it'll kill you if you let it. Yeah. Oh, I love this song. It's so good. Yeah, I love it. And like you said, that bit about the the con- like the op-ed specifically about being the construct of history which yeah. is exactly that idea that that memory is selective and that in some ways even history is something that we have to construct from the the elements that we've decided to keep that we never have a, a, a sort of an ability to look into all of history and find out exactly all of the information that we want that there's always a choosing and a selecting of what we keep and what we go on with um but yeah you're right i love that whole that that song in particular in that section is just it's hard not to kind of get swept up in it and uh, yeah I agree I think it's just a fascinating way to describe how that you can attempt to to gain some control and some of us try to do that in ways of like even taking it to the extreme of of cutting yourself off from people that you love because it's easier to choose to not talk to them than to lose them Mm -hmm. or or all of those things that like we we're searching for for a control and unfortunately the end of our lives in some ways demands uh, a relinquishing of control and that that's what is one of the things that makes it so painful because we're so much used to being self-determining and self uh, presenting and, and all of these things especially in, in the modern world that we identify so strongly with as making us who we are is like who we present ourselves to be or like you said like the act of ourselves and it's something that comes up a lot in this album is that yeah do you really recognize yourself under the person mm. that like that you have been trying to present yourself I think at the end of Empiricist it says one day your children find you locked in the Mm. bathroom staring in horror at the reflection of your face and you say you're sorry to the guests at your party but you can't help but wonder who is this person you celebrate and I think it's funny because that really brings us to like some of the ideas that you and I explored in the Walker Percy episode about like why are we ourselves our personhood the most fascinating thing to ourselves that like and also the most unknowable thing to ourselves (laughs) like we're the only person who doesn't have an outward perspective of ourselves and so I I I just love how those all all come together and I love also in the section that you read out it talks about the spirograph because we've already referenced the Mobius strip I feel like that Kyle Morton's lyrics are really so interesting in the way that they keep bringing back these in the midst of all of these sort of uh, literary and poetical references he's also just piling on all of these mathematical Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh, geometric patterns and to me it it's very telling because he also says that one of the big influences for this and and I think some of his other work as well is is Dante and to me that like Dante and the Divine Comedy is such a great example of you know sort of geometrical patterns being a huge part of how you understand the framework of this narrative and and the the spirals and the circles and the interlocking uh, levels and all of those things feel very very resonant together. That, yeah, you're so right. I forgot to mention that he's strongly referenced Dante as influ- influencing this work and some of his other uh, aspirational works. If you, if anyone has the chance, I would recommend if you do feel like you could handle Lost in the Cosmos, there are some fun resonances with this I, i've i've tried to encourage kyle to read it i hope he someday he can have the the time to i know he's very busy but but that said yeah what a challenge that we have our perspective from within our head no one else can get into our head we should know the most about ourselves and yet because we're the observer we can't observe ourselves and so like there there's this weird 
catch-22 where we actually, like you said, cannot fully know ourselves. And if we live a life unexamined, which I think is what he's talking about in Empiricist, or live a life that's purely empirical, just based upon material progress and sort of imitating the behaviors of those around us, playing a part in the dance, but never asking why or who we are, it can result in that and not not really recognizing ourselves or, or only seeing ourselves in our identity as imitation and fragmentation from other people rather than there being anything essentially unique in us. And and I do think that, that we're going to, he's going to cut back on that later on, but that is a serious risk, I think, for anyone who lives an unexamined life. I'm glad you brought it up. Yeah, and just just to reflect a little bit more about the the Divine Comedy, because obviously there's some great themes that can be pulled out from that that Carl takes full use of in the in the album, such as the River of Forgetfulness. And I think it's kind of interesting that in the Purgatorio, the River River of Forgetfulness. How do you pronounce it? Oh, I always get this wrong. We did a whole we did a whole episode on so, it, and I can't even so remember. The forgetfulness is the lethe, or lethe, and then lethe, the yeah. memory of of past goods that you know. I- That's it. And I think it's beautiful that both of those rivers are in Purgatorio, and I think. It's interesting. It reminds me a little bit of just to to give a little bit of personal information. I think I have mentioned that I was lucky enough to spend a lot of time with my granny when she moved back home with my parents in her last years and, and minding her and helping her through those those last stages of her life. But she had what I can only describe as, and again, it's one of those things about like, you just don't get to control on some level what the end of your life looks like. Because she did lose her memory, but in the most sort of comfortable way, which was that she just had absolutely no idea that she was bed bound. And uh, she was extremely comfortable. And, and she, but she would always just say, oh, I, I was just out of the bed. <laughs> and like, <laughs> you know, if she'd known that she was so limited or cocooned, like we were saying, I think it would have caused her a lot of distress. But instead, she was just in that experience of being very comfortable of like that, that feeling you have when you just get into bed yeah but mm-hmm. <laughs> like you're ta- you're taking the weight off your life and so and you know she did have other complication moments of 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 not knowing where she was or or wanting to see people that were no longer there and things like that but for the most part it was a gift as well and again that it comes back to that question of when you can see these things as an offering you can also receive them as a gift and and that's what we believe in our faith that it's when we have the kind of perspective of offering our lives back to God is when we are most open to receiving mm. blessings from him and I just think that that's so beautiful and yeah his his references to the divine comedy are great but then I suppose we should also given that this is ostensibly a catholic podcast we should make reference to the the very many biblical references and sacramental references in the album yeah yeah I'd love to do that so you pointed out how in beach towel there's already an allusion to drinking drinking wine, being invited to uh, drink a wine that would have someone, well, I guess, both lose lose memory of the painful past, but then also hopefully bring back that the richness. And um, it talks about how knowledge is tied to a consanguine kindness. And, and I had to look up the word consanguine to figure out just what it means. And, and it was somewhat obvious. It means of the same blood or related or one in the same. And so... Yeah, we've got we've got this reference. We've got the Genesis imagery that appears in various places. I I feel like there is actually some references to um, Inferno in relation to what hell sort of is in Dante's vision. Both that it can it's cold and isolated at its at its deepest most points, but two that it's inverted. There's another line in um, 
I'm sorry, I might be Bergeron here where he's talking about being a tarot card um, read upside down or a tipping cup, an inverted crown, the sense in which, like, if you remember, for those of you who, who've read The Inferno, when Dante gets to the centermost point, he has to climb up the devil's back and flip upside down to then begin the ascent in purgatory because the center of hell is at the center of the earth. And so going through, like if you were a kid digging through the ground of China, as we thought we did in America, um, you have to make that flip at some point. And there are also Catholic thinkers such as Irenaeus, who talks about the recapitulation that occurs when Christ conquers death, that the broken world is one in which things are not as they should be. The head, the cap, the capital, recapitulation, is not where it ought to be sort of like in relation to the body. Things are broken. There is original sin. And then it's through that salvation of, of transcending the journey, have Christ freeing us from the slavery of death, where things can be put back to where they ought to be and righted. Yeah, yeah, I feel like you're so right that there are just tons of actual biblical references in here too, which I think Kyle appreciates its richness and the wisdom it brings to the tradition. Yeah, I was thinking even in in terms of what you were saying there about redeeming the creation, because the beginning of Empiricist begins with, on the first day, God created Mm. everything. On the second day, God came to take it back piece by piece. And that sense of, like you said, almost piece by piece, like putting it once again in right order. And and there's also, as you've mentioned, there's these all these themes of, of water. You know, the different sections are called flood plains, flood, and this idea of the water breaking through. And again, the, the, the first track, Wake, once you get past that sort of open stated statement stated the wake of water like a like a right wake (laughs) right exactly so once you get past the first spoken statement this is so great that you you get onto this sort of deep chorus of voices saying down in the floodplains waiting on a cure blessed be the water may the water make us pure and again that idea of of baptism of being cleansed. And and again, with the you, you mentioned the line about being co-sanguine. In the track just before that, which is called Unusual, yeah. it ends again with a kind of chant, which says, debt demands a tribute in the hour of our need. Blood be the river to wash the ledgers clean. Mm. And that, so the, this whole idea of redemption and, and redeeming yeah, and that there's almost like a business quality of it, like the ledgers need to be made clean. You know, I always think of that other meaning of redeem, like we talk about it very, you know, spiritually a lot. And then you go in with your your gift card into a shop Redeeming and redeem the value of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, but that, you know, it can be both mundane and mystical at the same time that that. that that these two things happen at the same time. And so, yeah, that I just love that there's such great kind of imagery of both mm-hmm. water and blood being Mixed, things that yeah. wash us clean. And that's so central for from a Catholic point of view to, to how we, we can understand things. And of course, you know, you've got the, the Noah imagery. There's also a reference to, to Moses right. in, the, in the lyrics. Yeah, while you're finding that, it's it's also just the dual nature of water. Water, the cleaning can be terrible. The flood wipes the earth clean of what was, you know, ostensibly sinfulness. But at what cost, mm-hmm. you know? There was quite a severe cost. And similarly here, the, the, the flood wall breaks on this person's sort of like the, the boundaries of their brain holding intact. And everything starts to 
burst forth and get destroyed. But like you said, at the same time, is that in and of itself the baptismal process? Is that the purging, which is, again, I think the thing people misunderstand around, if you've heard of like the Catholic term of purgatory and you're envisioning, oh, Catholics invented this additional thing after hell just so there's more suffering it's really not for that like the the original meaning is to purge right it is to take all that is not meant to be kept all that is like um broken or or holding you back or causing you pain or the vices that are holding you down it's purging you of those to prepare you for the greater joy that's to come and so that well a quote that i love from dante's purgatorio is here there is suffering, but there is not death. I think that that's just such a beautiful notion that even in this life, there there may be suffering, but suffering does not always end in, in death in a permanent sense. And so, yeah, I love that. I will say, well, I don't want to push us too fast, but I know that we want to be conscious of people's times. But if we do have a chance to get to the final song, Sleep, there's some really interesting extensions of the, the, the water metaphor there and the Moses metaphor that, or Moses illusion that you mentioned. We could talk about that or are there any other amazing lines you want to touch on really quickly? Yes. So, I, yeah, I found that line about the, the Moses reference where he talks about just one more cradle down the creek, which I just love that idea of, <laughs> um, of all these little Moses baskets. He follows it up with au revoir to my little memory. Yeah. And then tell me this is not your loss. This is your offering. And so, again, like even the idea of giving up Moses and having him come back and, and, and having it be something that mm. like you have to give up in order to receive as well. But, but that you can't just he even says in the song. Like then you tell me that this is not a loss. This is an offering. It's it is, mm. there is like a, a boldness that's in some sense deserved. That you're telling me like offering this baby up to just being in the care of effectively God. You know mm-hmm. that that is the right thing to do here. That this is somehow gonna work out okay. Yeah, it, it sounds nonsensical, right? Like it doesn't seem like yeah. we should trust that. But like you said that trust or the hope that it will actually turn out is still present. The cradle down the creek. It's so sad to think of each memory just like being eventually let go and left entirely. That that actually comes up again in the last song where they talk a little bit about the last life rafts leaving this person's mind before they die. I do just want to say before we move on to the, to the annex, I want to be conscious of people's time. There is one line I didn't get to mention um, that relates to C.S. Lewis where um, I don't think there's a direct, any direct references I'm aware of, but when I mentioned that throughout this this whole album, and in Kyle's own words talking about it, he's mentioned that there is this hope that is there one thing that can survive the fire? Is there one thing that will transcend this boundary? Is there any relief to this? And is it more than just void? Like, is the relief substantial? Am I going to be made whole? Will my will my memories come back in a sense will i be healed for someone who isn't viewing this from a christian perspective this experience where do those desires come from i would ask c.s lewis makes an interesting point which is that he sort of posits that if desires exist in our hearts perhaps there is such a thing to satisfy it if a baby feels hunger there is such a thing as food he says you know a baby before they are born has not eaten through their mouths and yet that's something that they do desire. We can't necessarily desire things that don't exist. I don't. And yet, that's the mystery: is 
Does the desire for an afterlife, desire for union with something more whole and fulfilling and, and complete, tell us that there is such a thing as God or an afterlife? And that's a, that's a question that I think is being wrestled with here. I'm not sure that he, he comes down either way explicitly, but he is definitely wrestling with that. And then that's, it is something that I know that has plagued Kyle in the past. In, in the first album that I encountered, Hunger and Thirst, what a, what a title of the album. He's kind of wrestling with that question. What happens if there are if there are desires we have on earth that either can't be fulfilled due to tragedy or can't be fulfilled just due to circumstances? There was a life that he desired to live, a life where he was normal, grew up fine, was healthy, got to study abroad, got to go to college, got to do the right things, that is no longer available. And so the way that I interpret this in my own hope is that there is like divine justice, that there there is a hope that not all things can be healed on earth, though some things will be, but that, you know, in the end, there is a hope that all things will be made okay. To quote Julian, all will be well, all will be well, all manner of things shall be well. And so, yeah, I just I just love how Kyle's wrestling with this, even as someone who isn't from a Catholic background. And I feel like the cool thing about people who pursue the capital T truth of any genuine faith background is they often come upon a very similar conclusions. <laughs> if, if we're seeing the world the same way, we can actually come to sort of, I don't know, reflect on ourselves the same way. But, but yeah, sorry, that was a long tirade. I just wanted to get that in before we, we start to get to the end of this. Well, I think it's perfect, Shane, because in some ways I think it hints to, to what I wanted to say to get us onto our last track, which is that we mentioned the sort of geometric patterns and maybe what we didn't say was that there is this very, much recurring theme of like a fear but also like a sense that we're caught in a loop that like Mm. maybe even to the extent of being born again in in terms of reincarnation or something like that but that that sense of the end being like the beginning can leave us with a sense of like paralysis that we're just stuck in a constant loop or like like what he says about when you lose your memories that you're stuck in these kind of very small moments that go over and over and over again and that sense of like finitude that it all locks in on top of itself or that Mobius strip that there's kind of no getting off of it that you're just stuck in this this loop but throughout the album I feel like he also hints that there's just something maybe something more than just that loop that sense of like beginning and end and beginning and end and it's interesting because we quoted the line about Moses just before that he has this line where he says then what's that song that keeps hounding me and it just so happened that when I was getting ready for this episode, I'd come across this poem by Francis Thompson. And I don't know whether this was something that Kyle Morton was familiar with or, or was deliberately referencing. But either way, I think the resonances are really strong where the, the poem is called The Hound of Heaven. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind. Like those lines are very, very reminiscent of what we're hearing in offerings. But it's, it's it's about being pursued by the hound of heaven, that sense that there is something more, that God is maybe pursuing us with the, with the realization that there's something more. And I think, again, in the imagery that he uses, because so much of what he talks about is like hospitals and hospital beds, as we said, and he has all of these great kind of interweaving lines about there's one I think it says something like that the end of life is just a short ambulance ride and then a waiting room forever (laughs) which is a a really terrifying image I think none of us wants to be stuck in a hospital waiting room but then he also says that like there's no one behind the curtain and of course you can be talking about in a ward and being behind a hospital curtain there's also obviously the Wizard of Oz references that like again that maybe there's someone 
behind the curtain controlling things, but are they a fraud? Are they really who they say they are? Is there is there something to be believed in in the, mm-hmm. in the man behind the curtain? And then, of course, it comes all the way down to what he talks about in the last track. Yeah, I, I'm so excited that we're, we're getting to this. Okay, a couple things. Okay, so the way that Sleep, the final track on the album, is structured is it does stand apart from the rest. Tonally and musically, it is more more kind of cut back initially. And it's focusing on these last moments before this person, the main character we've been following, dies. One thing I did want to mention really quickly is that we, again, have his person's wife present. And we've been talking a lot about the main character of this, of this album, but there is a secondary character in this person's wife or spouse or loved one who recurs throughout many of the songs. And we actually get some really interesting vignettes into that person's identity and that person's experience of someone's death. And it struck me that someone, when we die, we don't die in isolation for the very fact that our death affects someone else viscerally, emotionally. If, if like if, if a tree falls in a wood in the alone in the woods, does it make a sound? It's like a person dies alone. Does no one else feel it? You know, it's an interesting question there. But but yeah, in in the song Sleep, I think it's OK to just walk us through it really quickly. The person is reflecting about how perhaps life has just been like a mixed bag of, of sorrow and grief and maybe a few good moments. And he begins to ransack his, I'm quoting sort of loosely as I'd say this, ransack his brain for one thought, one memory that would be of comfort, something small and something sweet. And again, why it's interesting and important that his wife is present when he when he's dying is that the memory that comes to his brain, which throughout the album he's been told, you need to remember one thing, one thing that matters, one thing that's good, before you die, it's that, I'll quote here, it was once in the spring, you were on the porch, I heard you singing, from inside, sat and listened through the screen. Now it's the time, the last life raft leaving my mind, as it sinks out of sight, would you stay for a while, put your gnarled hands into mine, hold me down, I feel so light, I could just float away, just don't let me go to sleep. So long, my sweet, maybe next time that we meet, we'll be whole, we'll be weightless, we'll be free. And I'm tearing up here because <laughs> every time I listen to this song, I, I want to cry. Um, it sounds maybe a bit, um, I don't know, a bit silly when it's just the words. And Kyle's mentioned too how it has more impact with the music. I encourage you to go listen. The thing that I want to mention next about this is this seems to be the end of the song, of the album. The person person begins to die. They repeat the phrase, just don't let me go to sleep. And it all dissolves into void and blackness and noise. All the noise we've been hearing from the album up to this point re- revisits us. And it feels like in some eerie way, similar to perhaps what, it, what a mind on fire would feel like. Everything is just firing off for the last time. And if, if anyone does want to listen to the album and have the full experience of the song, I suggest you pause right now, go and listen so that you can experience this final track the way it was meant to be listened to. But if you have, or if you are okay hearing us discuss the rest of it, um, you can stay on. 
Do you want me to talk about the next part? Or do you have something to say? Yeah, I was just going to say that, uh, you know, it it kind of shows you that it's an unusual album when you have to issue a a spoiler alert for (laughs) an album. Uh, But I I think it is worth saying, because like you said, I think it is great that you can have this surprise and that, that it is like in some ways thematically really appropriate that it is a surprise, that you have to go through the whole album and experience the the grief and the sorrow and the confusion of reaching that end point mm-hmm. and not know that there's going to be, because it's not listed, it, it has a name which is after party and we'll, we'll talk a little about what that means, but I don't think it's listed, it's not listed as an official track, it's just stuck onto the end of sleep. And so you, you don't know that this thing is coming, you don't know that there's more to discover and that like there is a resolution and there is hope. And not only that, but it's in the style of you hear it, 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 someone opening a creaking door and it sounds like they're stepping into a pub that's full of all of their friends. And it's a chorus of people singing much like you would with just a group of people like all together singing. It's not like a choir. It's just everyone sort of belting it out. And I, I think maybe, it, it, do you think, Shane, is it oh, worth just reading out the lyrics of, of After Party? Let's, I think this is deserving. It's not very long. But so after, after this yeah. void, literally the song goes to noise and blackness. It's been an hour of doubt and slow subtraction until this person finally expires and we're left in the emptiness of the void. Again, like Rachel said, you don't know that anything else is going to come. The album might end in silence. Like you said, all of a sudden it bursts forth and then would you like to read it? Yeah. Out of time and out of place, from the mortal coil deliver, to the great expanse found in the space between the celestial fissures, where the sick are soft of mind, where they're hardly disfigured. You shed your clothes, you jump the boat and join us in the river. We were born in the shadow of a callous certainty. Since no one has returned from behind the curtain, I guess we all just have to wait and see. We build a tall ivory tower, tallied hollow victories, But for all the noise and violent toys, our strength was in the moment when we were weak. Woo! (laughs) Um, Oh my goodness. We have all of these themes we talked about coming back and revisiting us in this epilogue. Uh, I mean, already there's the allusion you mentioned from Shakespeare in relation to the phrase mortal coil. That quote that you have here is, for in that sleep of death, what dreams may come, when we have shuffled off this mortal coil, must give us pause. But also that sense that, like, in terms of talking about the geometric shapes, like, this is the That's point right. in which you step off the mortal the coil spiral. and go somewhere else. Uh-huh. Like, you you manage to escape it. It's, somewhere, this, this, it's found in a space between celestial fissures. Like, it's outside of time and space. You know, there, like, I mm-hmm. think... I'll just give a quick... Over, like, my, my take on, on this epilogue is, uh, and why I love it is it really just feels like perhaps the closest approximation in song, and and I do think that in this case it counts as poetry, of conveying that experience of what it must be like to to yearn for heaven and then discover something like that might be real. Because it isn't just, like, the relief of his suffering isn't an empty void that's, although peaceful and no longer painful, as Socrates, you know, thought it might have been, it's so much more robust. It's... It's relational. Remember that the one thought that our character has before he dies, the goodness, the thread that pulls him out of Ariadne's maze, 
is a memory, although a mundane one, of the love of his wife through the noise of a song. And Kyle's mentioned how these mnemonic devices, if you've ever seen an elderly musician or performer hear a song they used to perform, it, it wakes up their memory. It, it transcends their memory loss, as Kyle puts it, and brings them back. And I just love that the one thing that, if we, if we think about empiricists and how he looks at his life and thinks, I've done nothing. I've just imitated people. Even the people, person I married and the kids that I've had have all just been following steps that I should have done and people told me to do. No, there actually is severe importance to the mundane, holy, intimate, quiet, gentle love that he had with his wife. And that is then expanded upon and multiplied in the chorus of friends who welcome him, like you said, into what's effectively a bar. You know, it's a party. Mm -hmm. The other thing I want to mention is that it's a real party. It's not just a weak view of heaven where you're getting infinite candy or booze or something. Like, these people have been healed. What, what do they say? It's where the sick or soft of mind, where they're hardly disfigured. You shed your clothes, you jump the boat, and join us in the river. We've got the boat, um, potentially, you know, from Greek mythology, the boat that ferries you to the afterlife, but then we've also got the river is no longer a source of destruction and, and purgation. The river is play. The river is joy and mirth. The river has become what it was meant to be. And you as like a complete person are just, are just able to be what you are meant to be in that space. Um, I, I, I was a lot, but this, I just love this song so much. <laughs> yeah, and in such a small space, it kind of covers a lot. Like right. you said, maybe it's worth saying. It's it's called After Party, which, you know, is obviously the, the party that comes after everything. <laughs> Although I said to you that I associate it, and maybe this is more just my own particular experience, but I associate that word most with the party that you have after you rap on a film mm. or after you complete a theatre production. A and so, again, re really interesting that it's at that point when you're with all these people who you've done this production with but you're you're not pretending anymore you're not making you're not making a production of something anymore this is the point afterwards where you get to be yourself and and celebrate what you've achieved with these people and so i think after party is a particularly poignant word for that and that when he says, you know, the sick or soft of mind where they're hardly disfigured, I think that really comes back to what you were saying about the yearning to be made whole. I think even the idea that you're hardly disfigured it puts me in mind of the fact that like our Lord still has the marks mm-hmm. of the cross on mm-hmm. him, that like some things that do remain, but also that there is a wholeness as well. And then even when you said you shed your clothes and jump the boat and join us in the river, like in some ways it's actually the opposite because Peter puts on clothes, but it really reminds me <laughs> of that bit of, of St. Peter seeing our Lord and jumping off the boat and, and, and running towards him and and, yeah. and finding that moment of reconnection. But the shedding of clothes is also, you know, returning to Eden, which is at the top of pur- purgatory and, and divine comedy. And so like, yeah, here we have the two rivers have come to their fruition. They've forgotten the past ills and pains and restored the memory of, of the goods, restored the memory of relationship. And I think, I think that's why I was hinting at relationship being so important is because we don't exist in isolation. Mm-hmm. We were never, we weren't born in isolation. We weren't made in isolation. And our, our identities are in some sense dependent upon relationship. And that's, that's reflected in the Trinity for us as Christians. Like God is not solo, but relational. And God is love in that way. Oh. Yeah. 
And then we get the resolution of the theme that I picked up about the curtain, since no one has returned from behind the curtain. And that sense of the veil and, and you know, going beyond the veil and that nobody has returned from behind the curtain, that there is this impenetrable curtain that we won't be able to to see beyond. Yeah, um, yeah. But that we just have to wait it, and see, right? <laughs> yeah. And again, to close out that theme of, you know, all of these things that we count as being important to who we are, it, the next line is we build a tall ivory tower tallied hollow victory but yeah. for all the noise and violent toys like these are all the things like the big things the wars the battles the things that we thought we were the masters of our destiny to, to show how important we are mm-hmm. and then it, it ends now it, it does return to that first part of after party as like a, a chorus but in terms of the the last new line of the the piece it ends with the sentence, our strength was in the moment when we were weak. Yeah. And like, is there a more Christian <laughs> statement that acceptance of weakness and acceptance of the humility and the humbleness and, and the strength that we draw from seeing ourselves in that humble state? Well put. And I, I said I was going to bring back the cross and how that is important here. And I think that is embodied there. That is a common theological theme, if you will, that Christ's strength is in his weakness, that God becomes a mortal being, that a mortal being then dies on a cross at the hands of other lesser mortal beings, but that in that actually the greatest victory of human history or salvation history, I guess, is accomplished. And I just wanted to mention quickly that the gravity of why after party hits so hard, it can only be understood in the context of the hour of, of suffering that's come beforehand. And I think that's similar to what we mentioned when we say, we like, what is the resurrection without the cross? What is the story without the journey or the end point without the journey? It's, it's, we've crawled through this, like as we've said before, sludgy pit and we've come out on the other side in clarity and brightness and, and refreshing water. Like I said, with things being flipped on their head, it feels like they're back where they ought to be. Oh, and I did want to mention that one other Dante illusion I kind of missed is that if the memory of his wife is what guides him out of the maze, which which Ariadne and other other songs were referenced to, she in some ways functions like like a Virgil or like a Beatrice. You know, she actually accompanies him to his death. Is there the whole way? loving him along the way. And it's that it's that mundane, gentle love that ends up being the guide for him in the confusion that is mi- losing his mind. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, that's also incredible. I think that covers all of my like major <laughs> reflections on the album. Thank you all for letting me give them. But yeah, I love that it ends, in, or not really ends, but the final new line, like you said, is our strength is in the moment when we were weak. And I think that, if that was your takeaway from this album, I'd be so happy. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think it's it's really wonderful. There's so many things that I feel like we could pull out. I think I said to you, every time I listen to this album, I don't know whether to cry or start writing a thesis on it. <laughs> <laughs> I think the this podcast episode will have to be the closest I come to writing a thesis mm. on it. But I think it's so beautiful that it ends on such a such a hopeful and uplifting note after after not flinching from the darkness. I remembered the thing that we need to touch on. So we talked about, well, I'm sorry, Rachel, I, I should have said, thank you for, for summarizing it so well. I will say this feels like the closest thing I'll ever get to, to doing that, that 
gospel of, of why this matters. You know, this feels like the opportunity to tell people why this is important. So thank you for that. And I hope, I hope that some people become new Typhoon fans after today. But, so, we mentioned that Asa Nisimasa is a recurring mo- motif in this album, and that its original function explicitly in the film Eight and a Half is as a mnemonic device to transport the, the main character back to their childhood. And while it absolutely has that function, it absolutely does that in this song, there are two points that I would love to make about this. One is that in the original understanding of it, it's that our childhood is really the explanation of who we are today. Those seminal moments, as they're called, define who you are as an adult. But I think in this song, Kyle posits rather beautifully that the moments that define us don't always have to happen in our childhood. They can happen later. They can redeem a life already lived. In some sense, the memory that comes to him when he dies isn't from his childhood. It's of a more recent memory of his wife. And that love, in some sense, can overwrite the trauma, the pain, and the wounds of a past life. And so, one, I love that seminal moments are transported to further in life. It's not like if you start becoming introspective at 40, it's too late for you, you know? (laughs) But then the other thing is that this is also written on the the Wikipedia for Asa Nisimasa and Eight and a Half, so it's not too much of a secret. But Kyle never overtly mentions this that I've seen, but Asa Nisimasa is is um, commonly understood to be a, a version of, uh, or sorry, a, a nonsense phrase made from like a Italian child's game similar to playing with pig Latin. So we might, we might say like Ixne on the Xne or those kinds of things. In this version, you add C or Sa to the end of, of syllables, which would, Asa Nisi Masa gives you Anima, which the Latin or Italian among you might recognize as Anima, the soul. And so what else remains after the fire consumes everything, after everything disintegrates, what could it be that could possibly transcend and exist the soul? And it's always been there. And he never said it in the album that Sly Dog. It, it, took, it took me like 20 <laughs> listens to figure that out. And I was like totally blown away. But also so glorious too, right? Yeah. Like, what what a yeah. way to posit a truth without saying it didactically. Like it's so brilliant. Asa nisi masa. The soul was always there, and you just didn't see it. Mm-hmm. You know. Oh uh, yep. I I'm so glad that we yeah we we'd been meaning to make sure we made that point, and then we almost got I to the almost end of the episode. <laughs> and now I now but I've we got there at the made end. All of my points. I, I can be satisfied. <laughs> Well, I hope uh, this has been an interesting episode for for listeners. Like I said, in some ways, I find it very exciting to do something that feels very off the beaten path of of what this podcast and like similar podcasts might touch on. This album just feels really important to me. I will be continuing to listen to it. And thank you so much, Shane, for sharing it with me. Uh, I guess uh, as this is running quite long already, we better quickly get to what are you enjoying at yeah. the moment? Thank you so much. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. I am perhaps somewhat lamely or coolly enjoying our friend's music, uh, P.O. Hartnett. I know that he hasn't released as much new stuff recently, but I just keep revisiting it and I really enjoy it. So I would encourage people to check out P.O. Hartnett. Alongside offerings, do that. Yeah. How about you? Um, yeah, well, to give, yeah, I, I think we've given P.O. a shout out on this podcast before. But I do have the inside scoop. I think there is some new music coming. So fingers crossed that we'll be able to discuss it even more then. Uh, what am I enjoying at the moment? Uh, my friend Jacob recommended the Cormoran Strike books, the the 
crime novels written by J.K. Rowling under the name Robert Galbraith. I started listening last year and I, I kind of couldn't stop listening for the first three books and then I managed to take a break but I've taken it back up and listened to another two which if anyone knows those books they get very long so the fact that I've listened to two back to back shows you how many hours I've been listening to it but I've been greatly enjoying them they're very enjoyable and uh, interesting and yeah I, I, I do a lot of very intense reading and so it's really nice to have some reading that I'm also just absolutely racing through and enjoying in that way so that's that. what I've been enjoying at the moment Thank other than that I think it's our usual round off if you want to follow us on Instagram it's at Risking Enchantment Podcast and you can usually find me under the handle Seeking Watson I think you can still find you Shane occasionally on the internet I'm not sure <laughs> um, I'll make sure to put your links in the bio and other than that uh, thank you so much for listening and we will be back again shortly with a new episode goodbye This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.